you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. The Season with Peter Schrager is a production of the NFL in partnership with iHeartRadio. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Season with Peter Schrager. I'm Peter Schrager. We're recording this on a Monday, November 6th. And I've got my lovely producer, Aaron Juan Kaufman here. Aaron, I thought yesterday with four games that were kind of billed as premier games was one of those great NFL Sundays. And yet what happens when you do that, when you hype certain games, you get these other sneaky ones. And I wanted to start this podcast off by talking about Josh Dobbs and the Minnesota Vikings and what an amazing story that is. I'm personally close to this. Josh Dobbs and I have become friendly over the years. He was a Tennessee quarterback, and then he obviously goes to, to the Pittsburgh Steelers as a third-string quarterback, and as well like those beloved guys in the league. But why I have a connection to Dobbs, he did this thing where he did an externship with NASA, and it was in the offseason a couple years back where he was in, I think, an aeroscience major or aero is that even a thing aaron aeroscience is that engineer i think aero, right? aeroscience engineering major in college i'm sorry clearly this was not my forte um and in our off-season shows for good morning football it's like who's doing something cool this off-season uh in in the world of football who wants to come on as a guest and josh dobbs came on i would say it was the summer of 2020 or 2021 probably three to four times. And then he and I struck up a friendship over text and like always just wish Josh Dobbs well. Well, then he goes to Cleveland. Then he goes to last year on like short day notice, like maybe like on a, on a, on a random like 15 days, like heads up. He goes to Tennessee where he ends up starting their final game of the regular season and almost beating the Jaguars in a win and end game, played very va- valiantly. And I was like, you know, this dude, like good for him, like Josh Dobbs. That's awesome. Um, then this year, with eight days uh, you know, left before the start of the regular season, he's traded to the Arizona Cardinals, and he starts week one for the Cardinals. And a couple of weeks later, he's beating the Cowboys in a game. And we had this really funny moment on the show where he was like, Dobbs was at the Arizona Cardinals team store, and they had all the different team jerseys. And he did a little Instagram video where he's like, I can't even get my own jersey. They don't sell my own jersey. I'm the starting quarterback of the team. They don't sell a Dobbs jersey. And we had such a fun time with that. And then I reached out to Mark Dalton, who's the PR guy for the Arizona Cardinals. And I'm like, you got to get me a Dobbs when you start selling those Dobbs jerseys. Sure enough, Mark gets it to me. I'm rocking a Dalton, uh, a Dobbs jersey multiple times in the past few weeks, almost as a goof, but also because we got love for this guy. Sure enough, Cousins goes down with the injury, and my phone starts buzzing on the trade deadline day that you know the the Vikings are making calls. I thought they were going to sign Colt McCoy. Colt McCoy had played for Kevin O'Connell for three years in Washington. I, he's a free agent. I thought that would be the move. Instead, they trade for Josh Dobbs. I don't send a note to Dobbs. I'm like, yeah, I can only imagine the world when this guy is. It comes out later that he still hadn't moved into his place in Arizona yet. He has unpacked bags and several shipments that still were coming for the Arizona house. Well, now he moves to Minnesota. 
And they're like, we're starting Jaron Hall, who's a fifth round pick and had been the backup, and they really like him, and he's out of BYU, and he's gonna Jaron Hall, and what I think what might have been like the second drive, runs around like a chicken with his head cut off <laughs> and gets clobbered. And I'm laughing, but like right away, I'm like, oh my God, Dobbs has to play. Dobbs has to play. Now I know Dobbs just got there. Now everyone who's listening might say, Yeah, well, Baker Mayfield did this last year. Here's the difference. Baker Mayfield got there on a Tuesday to the Rams and beat the Raiders on a Thursday. Very, very incredible, quick turnaround. I get it. But also, Baker was the number one. So Baker took the number one snaps in practice. Baker had a chance to do a crash course. Baker was there all night with McVay. Josh Dobbs is not the number one. Jaron Hall this week took the number one snaps. He just got there on Wednesday. He had never taken a rep with the first-team offense before they played this game on Sunday afternoon against the Atlanta Falcons. So he's thrown into the game, and you saw the footage. He's on the sidelines, and he's practicing the cadence with Garrett Bradbury, their starting center, and the rest of the offensive line. Uh, I, I was amazed by this, watching this. And then he goes out there. Aaron, he was awesome. He was awesome. This is against the number six defense in the league. It's against uh, Arthur Smith coached offense. It was Hummin also with Heineke. And it also was on the road. So you're dealing with the road crowd. He had never taken a snap with any of these players. And sure enough, on a fourth and seven, wiggles out of a sack, runs, makes a play, gets the first down, moves the chains, and then throws a game-winning touchdown to Powell. Um the Josh Dobbs stuff is incredible, and more and more stuff keeps on trickling out. Um, I want to say it was Kevin Seifert from ESPN had a, a couple of really good tweets about how he didn't know all the, the the names to all the players on his team, and he hadn't taken and he's and he was like just freestyling it with with Kevin O'Connell. I called O'Connell yesterday. We spoke. I was like, just give me anything. Yeah, he's like, dude, no, it's it's unbelievable. It, it's unbelievable because as the game is going, what we did was. For Josh to keep it simple was like, here is the most basic stuff, maybe 10 to 15 plays, like what you need to know, like the most basic. And he ran the full playbook and he kind of did it on, a, on like an improvisational whim. Like I am so blown away by what Josh did, Josh Jobs did yesterday. And then here's the crazy part. Now the Vikings are five and four. And they're looking at the playoff picture in the NFC. The Giants are done. The Rams look to be done. The Packers aren't scaring anybody. Who's that team? Who's that sixth or seventh? You know, okay, let's go through it, Aaron. You got Cowboys and Eagles, right? So there's yeah. two there. Let's say the Saints win the NFC South. So there's your third. NFC North, the Lions is your fourth. You've got the five and the six being probably the, the Niners and the Seahawks. There's a seventh spot sitting there. I don't know. Like, it, it's going to be who? The Buccaneers? The Falcons? Who's beat the Falcons? The Buccaneers? I don't, I don't know. Panthers aren't doing it. Giants are done. Commanders might. Commanders selling players off at the deadline. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this Vikings team could be really, really fun. And Josh Dobbs is a heck of a story. The other story I want to talk about is the Raiders. So, again, we were piping up the Chiefs Dolphins into Seahawks Ravens, into Eagles Cowboys, into Bills Bengals. We hyped it up as like these are like the four premier matchups of the week. There's no reason to talk about the other games. These are so good. And then you had that one in the early window. And then in the 4 o'clock window, here come the Raiders, blow out the Giants. And what a story that is. You saw the Jay Glazer report. Um, 
that, you know, in, in his morning, my report in the morning was that people were surprised that Ziegler lost his job, the GM, because he rebuilt the whole front office over the last offseason. Now they have like a legitimate front office where, you know, in years past, people would look at the Raiders front office and say, OK, well, that's that's kind of a wild, wild west situation out there. Now they they, you know, they hired from some of the best teams and Ziegler was really building it up. He gets fired. But also Mick Lombardi, who, if you listen to Mike Lombardi, who's on a lot of these podcasts, does a GM shuffle. That's his son, Mike uh, Mick Lombardi. He was with Belichick for years. He gets fired also. So you fire the head coach, the GM, and the offensive coordinator. So the quarterbacks coach, Bo Haggerty, he takes over as offensive coordinator and calling plays. Sure enough, the team looked alive. They looked great. Antonio Pierce has those guys humming. They look awesome. They're moving the ball. Like, just really, really inspiring stuff. And after the game, they're smoking cigars. Uh, they're dancing in the locker room. And Antonio Pierce, who's rocking two earrings. And I said on Good Morning Football, I think he's the first head coach in NFL history to wear two earrings on the sideline. Um says, you guys are off to Wednesday. And, like, you could see in that little video, Devontae Adams nodding, smiling, like, Gosh, it was like a cloud was lifted. And I'll be completely honest, and our guests today has a long relationship with him too. Like, I like Josh McDaniels. I don't play for Josh McDaniels. I'm a media guy. And Josh McDaniels has always been great to me and we've had a good relationship. He's a family man. Like, they look like a totally different team. And now suddenly they're alive. They're four and five. Like, they're, they're a real team. Raiders look good. I mean, Devonta Adams is still good. Josh Jacobs look good. Max Crosby look good. I, I look around the league and it's, it's it's every week is a different story because I was ready to come in and Aaron, I mean, like we talked Seattle two weeks ago, like, oh my God, Seattle. Well, they just got the doors blown off them. We talked the Niners the first five weeks and they've now lost three in a row. And I'll tell you, it, you look at what's going on around the league, the team that I think might be the most exciting and the one that has me you know, out of my seat, the Houston Texans. Did you watch any of that game? Oh, yeah. Houston Texans, not only did C.J. Stroud throw for 470 and five touchdowns, the most passing yards ever by a rookie, the most touchdowns ever by a rookie, but they also had to go on a game-winning drive in the final minute, and he did the job and found Tank Dell, oh yeah, a fellow rookie, um, for the score. So as we look at things here, this is kind of the halfway mark. There's 18 regular season weeks. We're through nine of them. We got a Jets-Chargers game tonight. Uh, I think the NFL is wide open. I would say my Super Bowl pick before the season was Chiefs over Niners. I'll stick with it. Uh, as good as the Eagles look. Um, Aaron, what was yours? You Mine was Eagles over Bengals. And would you would you move off it or would you stick with it? I'm actually kind of feeling okay with it yeah. right now. I mean, like you said, Niners have suddenly just hit this weird streak of losing. Um, and... You know, Bengals last night, like they're they're overcoming whatever ills they had in the beginning of the season. They look really good. Yeah. Um, and Higgins was, you know, like posting people up last night. They like had three tight offense. ends combined for 10 catches. Yeah. There are tight ends that have not played many roles. Yeah. Uh, Tanner Hudson, um, Irv Smith, and Drew Sample. Those guys were all over the place. So I ask you, as a Bills fan, are you panic mode or what? I don't think panic mode, but. Um, it's in the last three weeks, the Bills have not scored. They haven't scored like they should. Like, obviously, there are too many injuries. The defense is getting hurt all the time. Like, I feel like every week I'm just texting my dad during the game, like, how are we so injured every week? Um, I love seeing Dalton Kincaid get some great work, yeah. but it's rough. Um, and I do think the Bengals are a very good team. Like, if the Ravens weren't there, well, they are. Yeah. yeah. No, but this is good. Like, the Bengals are red hot. They've now swept um, 
The last three, they beat the Seahawks. They beat the Niners. And then they beat, uh, last night, the Bills. Those are three real teams. They play the Texans this weekend, and then they have the Ravens again. So they've got their, they've got their slate ahead of, ahead of them. Um, real quick, quick story. My son is a big Tyreek Hill fan. And, like, everything is Tyreek Hill right now. I don't know, you know, what... I was a Will Clark fan when I was a kid. Did you watch baseball as a kid? Like, Will Clark was on the San Francisco Giants. I was on the Giants Little League team. Oh. And Will Clark was their first baseman. It was, like, late 80s, and he was Will the Thrill, and he was great, and he was lefty, and he was great. And that was, like, my guy as a kid. And my brother was Don Mattingly, and I was Will Clark. Like, we had our, our guys. My son just loves Tyreek Hill and, and everything about him. Watches, like, YouTube highlights, and he's only seven. Like, diehard, right? So... Going in, this is like a parenting corner type thing. I'm biting off Simmons, I guess. So going into this game, I want my son to watch the Frankfurt game. I said, and I say, you know, I think the Chiefs are going to beat the Dolphins. And I gave him all my reasons why. I think the Dolphins, uh, you know, are coming in hot, but they struggle against the best teams in the league. I also think the Chiefs are such a veteran team. And I was really big on Spagnolo and the defense, knowing Tyreek. You've been hyping up that defense. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, you big. are. Right. And I've been tapping, patting myself on the back on this one. So. Long story short, I say to my son, I've never done this. I'm like, let's make a bet. So my son collects these toys called squeezy mates. Okay. Never had them as a kid. They are like are these literally like beanie babies or they're something? sort of these little toys, but they're really cool. They are all the different players in the league. Oh. All right. Cool. So it's like you collect them and each team has one. And some of them are random. Like the Bills one is like Dalton Kincaid, I think. And like the the Colts one is Michael Pittman Jr. But then you've got the Mahomes, and you've got the, and the, you've got like the the Jalen Hurts. They're really cool. Google Google Squeezy. Yeah, mates, they right? got the Max Crosby now and Miles the deal Squeezy mates. They're ten bucks a pop. So they're like old starting lineup toys, but they're these little squeezy. My son is obsessed. All he wanted for his birthday was Squeezy mates. And like, what do you do with them? Nothing. You collect them. Yeah. And you just have them, right? So I'm thinking like, wait. And then my son comes to me and says. Let's make a bet. I'm like, oh, great. All right. All the promo codes we're giving out are paying off here. Great. <laughs> Let's make a bet. Uh, okay. Now, he's a picky eater, my son, Mel. He'll eat pasta and butter every meal. He'll have pizza every meal. He'll have um, bagel and cream cheese every meal. That's what he eats, all right? Doesn't eat vegetables. Doesn't eat uh, chicken. Doesn't eat anything. I said, all right, here's the bet. If the Dolphins win, I will get you a new squeezy mate next week. This is post-birthday, post-Halloween, more gifts, just what the kid needs. I said, if the Chiefs win, you have to have a steak dinner with me next week. Now, does that sound like a punishment to you? Not at all. That sounds, <laughs> that sounds like quality time with dad. Steak dinner. Kids had steak one time in his life. He claims he hated it. We don't force it. I would love nothing more than a steak dinner. I mean, what world are you living in where if you lose, you get a toy, and if you win, you get a steak dinner with dad? Yes, sign me up for that bet. So sure enough, game's going on. I'm texting my wife. She's out with him. They're watching the marathon runners. They're on 4th Avenue in Brooklyn, and they're you know giving out water, and they're slapping five. And I'm like, it's 21 nothing. Tell Mel. I'm in L.A. And she's like, ooh, that's going to put him in a bad mood. I'm not telling him, whatever. It's 21-7, then it's 21-14. I'm like, get in front of a TV. Have Mel watch this end of the game. It comes down to the final thing. <laughs> Two uh, out of a shotgun. Ball snap. Fumble. Chiefs win. I FaceTime from LA as I'm on my way to the airport. And I'm like, Mel, Mel, you see? My son is distraught. I don't want to eat steak dinner. 
I don't want to have steak. And I'm just taunting. I'm like, so are we going to do fillets? Are we going to do a ribeye? I mean, truly, the greatest thing. And like, we're in New York City. Like, I will take him anywhere for this. So we have like this tradition now, maybe, that we could do this. He was distraught. And then he was so upset. And then I got home last night and whatever. And I talked to my wife. And I'm like, I should probably still get him the, the squeezy mate, right? And she's like, no, no, like, come on, he can't just always win. And like, he's getting a steak dinner. And like, when are you going on this steak dinner? What world? Like, in my head, like, it's like a fantasy land. We're just gonna, I'm gonna take him to like Peter Luger's tomorrow night, table for two, meet my son wearing Chiefs and Dolphins logos. Um, end of the story, I'll keep you updated. I know everyone at home is very, very compelled to learn how this goes, but the steak dinner slash squeezy mate bet. They sell Squeezy Mates online, but there is one toy store in Tribeca on – it's like on like Church and probably like Warren Street, like down there or Church and somewhere. They sell them in like this random toy store, Church and Reed, like down there. It like my son knows that he's like he, – he wants to go back there. But steak dinner, I will tell you how it goes. Um, it's important stuff, Aaron. I think everyone needed to hear it. Real quick, uh, Halloween – What'd you go with? We talked about this last no, week. No, you told me you went to yeah. parties with Halloween itself. Halloween proper. Oh, uh, it's a little uh, depressing. So I, I rushed you home. Elliot Smith? What'd no, you go no. with? <laughs> I didn't dress up for Halloween okay, itself. Depressing yeah. All right. So I, ran, I rushed home and I like got out our big bowl. I put in, we had a bunch of Reese's. We had some nice. leftover like gushers and all sorts of stuff yes. from uh, some weird party we had. We don't eat gushers typically. Yeah. And I sat out there. And no children came. Really? As I was walking home from the subway, I saw a bunch of kids in costume going into bodegas and stuff. And yeah, like, like, guys, you know, come here. Yeah. And I got to the house, like ran upstairs, filled the bowl, and I sat there for probably 30, 40 minutes. Saw no one at all. Oh, that's so sad. And eventually I like went back upstairs and I stayed by the window just in case. Oh, that's so sad. You're right. Nothing. Yeah. Um, I dressed as a slice of pizza. Nice. No, my son. Mel was a slice of pizza. Okay, fits with his, his yeah, culinary, his culinary appetite. Yep. I was a cheeseburger. Nice. My wife was she kind of she she was like I'm getting dressed up, but she kind of just put on like cat ears. Oh yeah, it counts. Sexy cat. Yeah, I don't know yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then my daughter was a unicorn. We left her at home with uh, a babysitter. We went out. Three of us. My wife lasted a few hours. Me and Mel were out late, though. We were out oh. to like seven, eight o'clock. Um, and we went to our favorite pizza place, Fascati, which is on Henry Street. Henry in between like orange and pineapple, probably, down in Brooklyn. Fascati, cash only, old school. And usually there's not a huge line. We go in. And I'm like, to the guys, we were there all the time. Like, guys, look at Mel. They took a photo with Mel. I'm like, I'm going to frame it. I'm going to put it up here. Because when you go as a slice of pizza and you get to finish your night with at your favorite pizza place, that's pretty damn good. You go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower... 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day. And smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. No further ado, uh, this is the general manager of the Houston Texans, a team coming off 
one of the coolest wins in the NFL during uh, week nine. And of course, having one of the great starts and surprising starts to the season, the Houston Texans. Uh, Nick Casario, welcome to the season with Peter Schrager. Good morning, Peter. Thanks for having us. I love having you on. I've been trying to get you on for weeks. Last year, I tried to get you like, we're building something when the time <laughs> is right. Like, let me, and you did me the favor to come on today after yesterday's miracle win. Now, when we look at that game and we look back at it, you lose the kicker scores. You have CJ Stroud, who has more yards and passing touchdowns than any rookie in the history of the sport. This is now 12 hours removed from kickoff last year, last there, uh, 24 hours removed from kickoff. Like, do you have a day to enjoy it or is it on to the next one? We've got to prepare because we've got a big game on Sunday. Yeah, I think when you get home at night, you kind of reflect and part of, um, you know, a lot of coaches, my process to go back through the game, kind of watch all three phases, kind of see some of the things that we did well, what are some areas that we can improve, whether some of the things that popped up. Um, and that game, there was an ebb and flow to it. First half, we probably didn't play as well as we either wanted to, kind of got off to a slow start, uh, put ourselves in a little bit of a hole. Um, but in the second half, we held into the field goal. Um, and then we were able to go down and score and get some points. Um, and then it was kind of back and forth there until the end. And in the end, it's about players making plays. So this is a player's game. Um, it's about the players when they're on the field. Um, and our players fought. The one thing about this team, and I think it starts with D'Amico and his thought process and mindset, is we're going to battle to the end, and we're going to do everything in our power to try to give ourselves an opportunity. Um, and we talked about it at halftime a little bit. I mean, for as badly as we had played, it was a one-score game. So let's just, for all the things that have happened, kind of erase that and let's get ready for the second half. It's a one-score game. So we kind of kept chipping away. And, you know, those last couple series there, we scored. Dari makes the field goal, which was interesting. It was a discussion. He hadn't practiced that, but we were kind of looking at it as points were probably at a premium. So yeah. D'Amico and Frank talked about it and made a decision to go ahead and kick the field goal and then went up three. And they scored, and we got the ball back, and we were able to capitalize there at the end. So um, there's certainly an emotional aspect to the game that's involved, but you have to decompress at night and then come in this morning. Uh, the coaches will go through the film, and the reality is we're, we're it's on to Cincinnati. I mean, we're getting ready for Cincinnati against a good football team next Sunday. That's interesting. On to Cincinnati. You've heard that one from an old colleague of yours. That works. Um, let's go back to, like, January, February, March, and the Texans are in this really interesting time where you've got two picks uh, in the first round. You've got a void at quarterback, or at least we thought so. I mean, there's a lot of rumors that you guys might take a defense player and no quarterback, and you work out C.J. Stroud. Now that it's it's you know coming into fruition and he's having one of the greatest seasons we've ever seen from a quarterback as a rookie, what was the pre-draft process with CJ? When did you fall in love with him? And when did you know that finally, after a couple of years of not taking a quarterback on the front of the draft, this was the year and this is the guy? Yeah, we were positioned fairly well, as you alluded to, with 2-12 and 12 going, kind of going into the, the draft. So we knew we were going to have either, A, some flexibility or hopefully we were able to get some good players there at the top of the draft. Um, we were pretty confident that we were going to pick somewhere in the top 10, however it went, um, whether we moved back or we moved up. And, you know, once the season was over, um, you know, we had done quite a bit of work here as a, as a scouting staff. I'd say Lip and the college scouting staff do an unbelievable job during the fall um, accumulating information. And once you really – the line of demarcation is once the juniors, underclassmen actually declare, then you <laughs> kind of know the pool of players that's going to be available. And those are the groups of people and players that you really have to spend the most time on or with because sometimes you have the least amount of information. Um, but – 
we had gone through the quarterback group pretty extensively. Um, you know, I think it kind of separated itself there. There was kind of a couple of groups of players. There was probably a handful uh, in one kind of category. Then there was a tier below that. Um, we really went through every player, whether it was an all-star game, combine, 30-man visits. Um, I want to say we had, I don't know, however many it was, a handful of quarterbacks yeah. in our building as a part of our um, as part of our process, and then the Zoom call. So you're just trying to accumulate as much information as possible as many, and give them different angles, maybe feed them some information, see how they absorb it, then follow up. Okay, we talked about this a little bit earlier, see what their recall was. I think the most important thing is with any player is – they just have to be who they are. So whatever their personality is, you just want to see a consistency at every checkpoint from whatever interaction you had, whether it's in the school, whether it's at the combine, whether it's with one coach, does he act the same way with one staff member as he does with another staff member? Because you would be surprised that at times you find some gaps or they say one thing to one person and then they say another thing, and you're like, wait a minute. Like, let's try to a, up like in the movies where it's like he treated the cafeteria people poorly, like that kind of stuff? In some respects, yeah. But even, you know, whether they make a commentary about something or their persona or their attitude or how they interact with other players that are in, in the building on the day. We usually bring in, I don't know, four or five players or groups of players in on one particular day. We have a pretty extensive process from the time that they walk in the building to they meet with the entire group, and then we reconvene at the end of the day and kind of recalibrate what are our collective observations. You really get input, whether it's a strength and conditioning coach, position coach, offensive coordinator, uh, player development, scouting, training staff, medical. You're looking for consistency in behavior across, I would say, the different areas. So. Um, it's a pretty rigorous day. Uh, we're not on the, you know, let's bring them in and bring them to a steakhouse. Like, we're, yeah, yeah. in the end, let's do some work. You're trying to simulate as much as possible. What is it going to be like in the building on a day to day basis when you're around these people? When in the end, it's about football. There's nothing else they have to worry about. This is their primary focus, and some can handle that better than others. So, I would say as we work through that process, um, things start to declare themselves there a little bit. Um, you know, specific to CJ, I mean, I think his personality, you feel it. You feel his presence when you're in the room with him. There's a confidence. Uh, there's a competitiveness. There's an edge in a good way of what you want. Um, and he has, I would say, he's. it's that balance of confidence and humility. Like, mm-hmm. you believe in yourself, but you also have to make sure that you know, there are times when you take a step back and, you know, you put your ego aside. So, um, I'd say by the time we got to April, we kind of had an idea. And then really the draft is about positioning. So really those last couple of weeks in April, you're having dialogue, you're looking at your options, you're getting more information. I'd say, you know, we did pretty extensive work and just kind of go back and just check and double check. And part of the, um, you know, part of this process is finding the right people to talk to that give you the true representation of really what you're going to get, you know, because then they can bottom line it for you and say, look, in the end, here are the things that are important and each player is going to be a little bit different. So um, a lot of discussions, a lot of dialogue. Um, yeah, we felt confident by the end. And, you know, we really didn't know where or how things were going to unfold on draft day. Um you know, I know D'Amico and I, you know, we've talked, we talk every day. I'd say during that time, I mean, we talk Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> went through scenarios. Hey, what are some different options? And he was great. And then I'd say by the end, we certainly had conviction. Um, and then, you know, when it came time to make the selection, then we, you know, went ahead and did what we felt made the most sense for our, our organization. So 
it was pick, and then you know we were able to um, consummate the trade there with Monty um, and move up to three, and then pick both players, and you know here we are. Go back into your shoes because in the media, in my world, it was understood that Bryce Young was probably going one. And then there were stories that you guys were going to take Tyree Wilson out of Texas Tech. Then there were stories that you're going to take Will Anderson second overall. Then there was the S2 cognition test stuff. that came, And all this stuff is going on and it makes for great TV on Good Morning Football. When you're in that building, great and I'll give you a great <laughs> show. Thank you. Great show. Great show. <laughs> we love that stuff. Um but when you're in that building and there's all this other stuff swarming, is it like we don't even pay attention to that stuff or all those rumors? Or Because I'll, I'll say it like it is. Nick, uh, no one knew what Houston was doing two overall until that pick was in. And no one knew what was happening at three overall until that pick was in. So is that a source of pride that no, no one was on your tail? There is no leaks in this building and there's no one giving it away. Or is it one of those where it's like this is what we were going to do, what we weren't going to do. We don't care what the media says. No, it's a great question. I think it's really a credit to a lot of the people that are in the building. Um, and I mean, D'Amico's really main message to the team and the, the number one rule is protect the team. So we all have a responsibility to protect the team and do what is right by the team, not by one individual or not subject to, I would say, public perception or external factors. So part of your job, I mean, that's what you all do. I mean, there's a lot that you want to talk about, need to talk about, because there's a gap. There's no football being played. Nope. So you have essentially, when free agency is over, as you know, middle of March, free agency is done the first or second week of March. So you have four to five weeks where what else is there to talk about? There's no offseason program, no football. So you're going to talk about the draft every day. So I think the thing that you have to guard against more than anything is misinformation during the spring. And it goes back to trusting your work trusting the time that you've put in, trust the people in the building that who have, I would say, invested a significant amount of time and effort um, and just have constant dialogue and communication. And quite frankly, you have to ignore the external factors. We're cognizant that it's there, that it's out there. There's going to be a lot of discussion. What are the motives behind that? I mean, as you know, sometimes things get a little bit jaded or shifted a certain way. And you try to paint or create a narrative. So we just have to make sure that we maintain our discipline and just do what we think is in the best interest of the organization. And frankly, and I've said this publicly multiple times, I mean, the draft's a 50-50 proposition. So there's going to be players that you think it's going to go one way and it works out the way you hope. There's going to be other players for whatever the reason that doesn't go the way that you would have hoped it would. So there's no experts in what we do. There's no experts in our field. There's no experts in our building. I think we have a lot of people with a lot of pride um, that care about their work and are invested fully in the process. And we have to trust each other and we have to trust ourselves, and we have to trust the work that we put into it. Uh, so I'd say really the draft is a culmination of the effort of so many people. And then really the draft, to a certain extent, you're prepared, but you have to be able to adjust and adapt and kind of bob and weave as you go because you have to be prepared for a married of different scenarios. So I think more than anything, it's just a credit to the people in the building. Um, and the reality is, at some point, the information is going to get cut off, and there's going to be certain people that have access to that information. I mean, it's just part of running just a good company or a good business. Yeah, and not everyone back, needs to know all the details. Yeah, and going, what, going back to what D'Amico says, I would say consistently is protect the team. So in the end, we're about protecting the team and doing what's right for the organization. You take C.J. Stroud at two, and there's a couple of oohs and ahs, and then... 
The Texans are back on the clock. Could you take us through those six minutes of you negotiating with Monty Asenfort, the first year GM, who is a former colleague of yours, uh, who is the Arizona Cardinals GM, and how you guys decided to make the move up to number three? Yeah, I mean, I'd say relationships are a huge part of this business. Um, have a tremendous respect and admiration for Monty, both personally and professionally. And we had had some constructive dialogues probably a week or two, about probably about a week out from the draft just going back and forth. Um, you know, he was certainly weighing some things on his end. Um, and then we're able to kind of get some, I would say, general parameters sort of in place. If if this happened, here's what potentially it would entail, not knowing that whether or not it would come to fruition or not. So we didn't know. We went back and forth. So there was a gap there where, quite frankly, you know, we didn't really know what was going to happen. Um, you know, and, it, and it happened quickly because there's, what is it, 10 minutes yeah. In the first round. So you make the pick and then, okay, Arizona's on the clock. All right, so a minute or two go off. So then you're at five to six minutes and you don't have a trade. And then there's a lot of logistics that are involved from agreeing to the compensation, agreeing to the trade, getting that information to the league, make sure the league um, uh, confirms that you actually have the trade. And then you're on the clock and then have to get a hold of the player and make sure the pick gets turned in. Um, via Microsoft Teams um, mm-hmm. or whatever technology is available. So um, so there's a lot of uh, that can happen. So I think you just kind of have to maintain, you know, you have to take the emotion out of it. Um, and, but when the trade was actually consummated and we made the pick, you know, we were all excited um, and emotional um, because we felt, I would say, convicted um, really about both players. So, um, yeah, so it was exciting. It was an exciting time for the people that are involved. It was an exciting time for the organization, for ownership. And they're certainly supportive of, of what we were trying to do. Um, so, yeah, so, um, you know, it was a cool moment just for everybody involved. And then <laughs> you kind of take a deep breath and realize, all right, you're not picking until third yeah. round because you don't have a th- second round pick. But, I mean, that's the way it goes. Stroud gets there. Anderson gets there. It's a pretty cool deal. You've got now your cornerstone at quarterback, your defensive end for the future. Now, was there a moment this summer where you saw C.J. Stroud do something and say, oh, boy, okay, we got something here? Yeah, I think you're just looking from the time they walk in the building uh, for improvement because the reality is whoever you pick, whenever you pick them, regardless of how talented or how productive they've been, they're really they're starting from scratch. So they're just kind of putting the, the foundation in place learning the building, learning the people, learning, learning the terminology, learning how to practice, going out there, making mistakes, and then going back, correcting. Do you not make the same mistakes um, a second time? So it, it, the bottom line is you're just looking for improvement from the time you start until an end point. So you really have called six weeks where you can evaluate. So you get into OTAs, and then you get into mini camps. So after four or five weeks, you say, all right, take inventory of where you are. All right, there's some things that have gone well. Here's some things that we could certainly fix or improve. Um, and I think CJ earned the, the job and earned the opportunity with his performance. Um, and I think that started from the beginning, what the expectation was. Like nobody's going to be handed anything when they walk in our building. You have to earn it on a day-to-day basis with your attitude, with your behavior and your performance. And the players that do those things, those are the players that we're going to be able to rely on, that we're going to be able to trust, and that we're going we're to want to put on the field. So we came back from uh, from the summer, had a little bit of break there, came back in training camp. Um, I would say there was some good plays, and kind of incrementally it got better. And I'd say after a week or two, you started to see some things. And then, all right, we'll try to give him a little bit more, see what he can absorb, see what he can handle. Um, and then by the time when, you know, I think we, you know, got there to the end, I think we kind of knew the direction that we were going to go. Um, and then you kind of hit the reset button once a, 
uh, training camp is over and once the preseason is over, hit the reset button and you're really kind of going back to square one. Yeah. It's week one um, in Baltimore, which I would say, not surprisingly, I mean, they're one of the best teams in the league. I think we knew it was going to be a pretty significant challenge going into Baltimore, playing on a road, playing against a really good team. Um, and there were some things that I think we learned about our team, uh, not only CJ, but we learned about our team. I mean, you know, it was a one score game, seven, six at halftime. The second half kind of got away from us, but you know, there were some things that we had to get correct, corrected and fixed. And, you know, then we turn around the next week and we lose at home and then we're in two. Um, but I think the team stayed invested. The attitude was great. The morale was great. And it really, it starts with D'Amico and his leadership, um, at the top. Let's go to that hire because you guys had been through two different coaches who lasted one year and it's kind of like, we got to get this one right. You guys brought in other people and you hired D'Amico Ryan's former player, who's a very well-respected defensive coach and then coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers. Did you have a history with D'Amico at all? I know he was with the Texans and yeah. with the Eagles for a little bit. Did you ever, were you ever in a front office where he was one of the players? Yeah, no, we never overlapped. Um, we played against the Texans uh, multiple times when I was in New England, but when D'Amico was a player here, and then matter of fact, we played against uh, Philadelphia uh, when he played for, I'm going to think he was playing for Chip. Yep. Um, we played them during the regular season there at one point, but as far as that, I mean, we didn't have any, I would say, we knew of each other. Sure, but there wasn't some long relationship no. of 20 years. No, okay. no, we didn't know each other, I'd say, on a, on a personal level. It was just more of kind of from afar. Um, and you respect, you know, what a coach does when you watch their team play. Um, you know, we played against San Francisco in 20, was it 21 uh, when we played against them? Um, again, my first year here, went out there and played against them. Um, so then you just start to accumulate information. Um, you know, we made the change. Um, you know, we put a lot of, say, thought and effort into it. And, you know, there are a number of people that are involved in that process. Um, and, you know, we went through that process. And, you know, there was he was he stood out amongst, uh, let's say, a pretty good group of candidates for a myriad of reasons. I think the big thing, and there's a lot of people in this building that were around him as a player, um, I'd say who he is is, you know, he, he, he's true to who he is. He has a great mindset. He has a great personality. He's genuine. He's very competitive. He cares about people. He's good at his job. He was a good player. He's invested in the city of Houston, um, and he had success, um, and he was a part of winning programs. I mean, what John and Kyle have done out there in San Francisco, I mean, there's not too many programs that have had as much success. So you want know, to put all those factors together. Um, you know, we made a decision that we did. Um, there's a lot of excitement and, you know, he deserves, you know, every, um, amount of, he, he deserves as much credit as, as anybody, um, because he's put his imprint on this team, um, with his message and his just consistency day to day and the players respond. They want to play for him. They want to be here. Um, he holds them to a high standard. He holds them accountable. He cares a lot about them. Um, regardless, win or lose, it's the standard of performance has been established. The mindset has been established. We know we're not going to win every game, but are we doing the things on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis that put ourselves into position? And if we don't, then here's the reason why. Here's the things that we need to get fixed. Um, so, I mean, I can't say enough great things about who he is, not as a coach, but as a human being, as a person. And those things certainly matter uh, when you're running a football team, when you're around each other, essentially, on a day-to-day basis for multiple months out of the year. Yeah, and then he brings in Bobby Slowick as the offensive coordinator. And you think about that 49ers tree, you know, we've already seen Kyle have all the success here, but, like, now you've got 
Mike LaFleur has already been elsewhere as an OC twice. You've got Mike McDaniel now flourishing. And then here's this Bobby Slow, who I got to be honest, I wasn't I wasn't aware of what his offense would look like because he never was necessarily calling the plays in San Francisco. And then now he comes in. You've got to be overjoyed with the connection he's had with Stroud and these young receivers. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's a propensity to kind of attach trees and, well, this is going to happen. And I think the reality is when you're running a program, when you're starting a program, when you're bringing somebody in, you sort of have to make it your own. So I think all of us have a foundation, I'd say, that we were raised on or who we worked under or who we learned under, um, philosophies, how that was built. But the reality is when you go into a building and, and start a program and bring people in, it's you're trying to put your own spin on whatever that is, and it's usually a function of the players that you have in the building and the things that they do well. So your ability to adjust, to adapt, you have a core foundation and the principles that are important, but the reality is you're probably going to have to bob and weave a little bit and you know make some adjustments as you go. I was reading some, you know, in fact, we're playing you know, Cincinnati this week with Zach, and Zach has made a comment how sometimes how the offense starts at the beginning of the year looks a lot different when you get midway. Mm-hmm. And really, that's sort of emblematic of what this league is about. You really have to be able to adjust and make some modifications and adjustments to your personnel, or if something's not going well, all right, maybe figure out a different way to do it or come up with another solution. So Bobby's a very a smart person, works very hard. He has an interesting perspective because he was on the defensive side of the ball. Um, and, and sometimes I would say, you know, I would speak from experience. When you work on the opposite side of the ball, it gives you a better understanding of what goes on on, you know, the, the respective side, yeah. of, the side of, the, of the coin there. So in Bobby's case, he kind of had a background on defense. Um, of course, his dad has been a very successful yep. defensive coach. Um, his brother's down there in Miami coaching on defense. So Bobby has a really unique background, very smart. I mean, anybody that goes to Michigan Tech, like, you, you got to be pretty smart. So I think he also worked for a pro football focus for a while, yeah, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Like, he was yeah. on the analytics side doing yeah. research. Like, yeah. that's different. Exactly. So you learn a lot. And then when you go, anytime you go into a situation, you're trying to figure out, all right, these are things that are important. All right, we want to start here. All right, who are the players? What are we going to do? And then, you know, we're eight games into the season now. I think we have a decent idea of some of the things that, you know, maybe the quarterback does well or certain players do well. Understanding we still have nine games ahead of us and there's a lot of good coaches out there. So, um, you know, we've put together, D'Amico's put together a great staff. They work well together. It's a good combination of youth and experience. Um, and really, whatever your background is, that's kind of your, your starting point. But the reality is you're trying to create your own image of what you want it to look like. All right, now let's talk about you a little bit here, okay? You're born in yeah. Lindhurst, Ohio, <laughs> all right? You're going to have to. We're gonna Lindhurst, Ohio, okay? And you're from what I call the John Carroll Mafia. You go to John Carroll where <laughs> all of you guys, I feel like 98% of the GMs and coaches in the league quietly went to John Carroll. You know, close, John not Carroll. quite, but close. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's not a straight shot to New England. You start off at Saginaw Valley State as a grad assistant. You end up going to Central Michigan. And then you end up with the Patriots as a coach, and you're coaching them for a while before making the move to to move it over to the director of pro personnel. So take us through your path a little bit. Let's go from from graduating college and what you wanted to do for a living and how you got there. Yeah. So when I got to college, um, you know, I thought I was going to major in political science, go to law school, kind of take that route and switch my majors a few times. I think I went from marketing to finance. Um, I enjoyed finance, even going all the way back to yeah. uh, when I was in uh, 
my senior year of high school, university school, we had to do kind of a one-month internship. Um, and I did a internship at Kidder Peabody, which is now defunct, and then eventually Smith Barney. Um, worked for uh, um, a guy by the name of Jeff Rotsky. Jeff actually has been a really successful high school coach. So Jeff kind of had the balance of football business, you know, where he was basically a stockbroker by day, and then he ended up coaching uh, multiple high schools um, in uh, in the city of Cleveland. So anyways, so as a finance major, um, so I finished uh, football December 1998, and then started working at Merrill Lynch. I was working for Jeff. Um, was working in finance. We had a. Is that uh, right? What were you doing? Were you like a yeah, personal no, finance? I was basically like, doing research, and we had a fee-based product that we were pitching at the time. So I was kind of responsible for that. You know, where you match up certain money managers. Here's a product we offer. Here's the uh, here's the fund. Here's some of the holdings within the fund. And you essentially try to pitch that to clients. So started doing that in January. Uh, my best friend, John Priestap, and I started you know, working together. So John and I were working together, living together. John uh, played receiver for us at, um, at John Carroll. Um, he and I established an unbelievable friendship um, from the time that he arrived on campus. So John and I were working together. So we kind of had a professional life, making decent money, had an apartment. A picture in subway ads and billboards, like, here we are. This is the two guys, the two young bros selling stock tips. And, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, exactly, yeah. So while we, uh, we started working, um, you know, I think I had an itch for football and sport, and I'd say that the, my, uh, the root of that is, you know, my high school coach, my high school head coach and offensive coordinator, John Carroll, Joe Perella, God rest his soul, had a tremendous impact, I'd say, on my life. He helped me as a player. He helped me become the player that I developed into. I mean, I wasn't very good, but he got the most out of me. Um, I like to think that I worked pretty hard at football and cared a lot about football, and I love being around the sport and being around the game. So um, at the time, I was single. I didn't have any sort of connections to any anybody or anything, so – I went on uh, the, the football scoop or whatever the yeah the was, website was to find sure. a, a graduate assistant job. So I literally I drove to Concordia University, which is outside of Chicago. Yeah, day trip interviewed there, and then I took another day trip up to Saginaw Valley. Um, literally didn't know a coach, didn't know anybody on staff, just wanted to be in football. So I drove to Saginaw Valley, met with Coach Ori, Randy Ori um, was a head coach at the time. I went over there over the summer. Um, said, Coach, look, I just, I just want to be in football. I just want to be involved. I'll take whatever job you have available. They had posted a position. It was an offensive grad assistant position or whatever it was. Um, and then by the, and along with that, I was able to pursue an MBA. You know, So I could coach. I could still work on some schooling. So it was kind of two for one. Um, I'd say two areas that I was fairly passionate about. Um, so started Saginaw Valley. Um, Let me just put this in perspective here. So you're making real money living in a city, right? You were living in Cleveland? Yeah, I was, living? Yeah, I was making a decent amount of money at the time. Yeah. Um, and then I took a graduate assistant position. And I think it was making, I don't know, $2,500 a year. So 2500 a year. But think about this. You it had, it's very easy, though, for you to say, you know what? I've got a job. I've got a nice apartment. I'm paying my rent. I'm in Cleveland. It's a cool city. I'm with my best friend. But the football itch was so great that you gave it all up and drove with no connection to Saginaw Valley State to work for next to nothing just to get your foot in the door. Yeah, and I think a lot of us have been in the same situation. But I'd say going back to John, um, I'd say his family um, was a huge impact. They essentially, you know, helped me over a two-year period. Um, and John is from outside of Detroit, so he had family there. So that was the only people that I really knew. And, you know, John was supportive. Here's my best friend. We're working together. He was supportive as anybody. So. Hmm. 
Um, went up to Saginaw Valley. We actually had a pretty good team. Um, so my second year, so working on offense, kind of working with the running backs, handling some of the special teams, and then I was also going to class at night. So and I loved it. I mean, I was in football. I was going to school. I think I'm a pretty curious individual by nature. I like learning. So, um, so two seasons at Saginaw Valley, and then in January of twenty, it would have been twenty. Uh, excuse me, two thousand one. Um, there was a grad assistant position available at Central Michigan, um, and the reason I came across that was typically when you're a grad assistant, you're a college coach. You work summer camps. That's your way to make a few okay. extra bucks. So. Worked the football camp at Central Central Michigan University when Mike DeBoard was a coach there, mm-hmm. um, and then Butch Jones was a running backs coach at um, at Central Michigan. So Butch and I had kind of maintained contact. So he was at Central Michigan. So through communication, through dialogue and discussion, he had mentioned that there was a potentially a GA position that was available. So um, so from January '01 till June, so I was a grad assistant at Central Michigan. I started working on a defensive side of the ball with the outside linebackers, and John Mulligan was the defensive coordinator at the time. We actually had a really good staff. John Mulligan was the defensive coordinator. Scott Leffler is the head coach at Bowling Green. Yeah, uh, was kind of quarterbacks coach. Coach uh, Butch Jones was the um, you know was the running backs coach, and Mike DeBoard, um, who coach had you know he's been an offensive coordinator in the SEC. He's been a head coach. So so started uh, so during the day I would. I would go up there and do football, and then in the evening, I would drive from Mount Pleasant to Saginaw and take my classes two or three times a week. So you stayed in Saginaw, but you were coaching at Central Michigan. How long? How far is that? It was about a 45-minute to 60-minute drive, so Still. I would go back and forth. So it was in my apartment in Mount Pleasant, so I'd, I'd work during the day, and then if I had class, I think it was like two or three times a week, I'd go take class, and then I'd come back. Um, and that was kind of my routine for six months in the spring. Um, it's because I wanted to finish my MBA. I was going to say, why did you why did you pursue that MBA so aggressive? Was there always in the back of your head like, well, if this doesn't work out, or is it just you always wanted it? Yeah, I would say I was interested in finance. Um, I was interested in business, and I kind of started down that path. And my you know my mom and dad always taught me once you start something, you you need to finish, finish it. it. So I did. You know, I could very easily could have walked away, but I invested eighteen months of my time. So. You know, I was, you know, the semester out. So uh, I said, there's no way I'm not going to do this. So, um, and Coach DeBoard was great. He understood kind of my predicament that I was in. So, um, you know, education, I would say, is a big part of my life, but a lot of time, um, you know, and be able to message that to my daughters um, certainly be important. So I um, was able to finish my MBA. Like I said, I'm interested in finance. I'm interested in investments. I was at the time. I still am to this day. Um, so finished off that kind of January until June. And then in February of 01, at the time, Josh had been hired by New England to be kind of QC quality control. Um, so obviously our relationship goes back to, you know, our time together, at, you know, John Carroll. Um, so he had mentioned that, hey, there might be an opportunity um, in New England as a scouting assistant. Uh, would you be interested in kind of player personnel? And, and at the time, I had no idea what player personnel in the NFL was, like yeah. zero, like no idea. Did you even, I mean, so so Josh McDaniels is working there already, and you get this call, and you're thinking, was, it, was NFL even a thought? No, Peter, not at all. I mean, yeah. I was certainly happy, enjoying what I was doing in college. I thought, okay, my next opportunity, maybe I can get a full-time position in college football somewhere, maybe be a position coach or stricted earnings or whatever the natural progression was. So, um so I was working through at Central, at Central and then, you know, in the middle, of, it was like June, June, we were just about to finish up, you know, and Josh said, hey, look, you know, there's a position, would you be interested? And I said, sure, I'll come up and interview. So 
Uh, I'll never forget. I got the call. Um, Nancy Meyer, um, who's one of, to this day one of my best friends, um, who's I'd say has as big an influence in my life as anybody. So she connected me. Scott at the time was overseeing personnel in New England. Pioli. Yep. yep. So um, Nancy said, "Hey, can you get on a flight in Detroit at whatever time it was?" I said, "Yeah, no problem. This is probably midday." So and Detroit was probably two two and a half hour. I mean, give or take. I can't remember exactly, but it's a decent drive from Mount Pleasant to Detroit. And I said, "Yeah, no problem. I'll I'll make <laughs> I'll it." Figure it out. Flight. So uh, it was like a late evening flight, late afternoon flight. Grabbed my suit, went to the uh, went to the airport, changed into my suit in a stall in the men's in the men's <laughs> bathroom, um, and then got on the plane. Um, got there that night and then interviewed the next day. Um, it was in scouting. It was a player personnel assistant. So all the things that uh, go along with that, I would say responsibility, um, scouting assistant, personnel assistant, whatever you want to term it. So um, went up there and interviewed. Um, you know, Did you meet Atlanta. Belichick on that first interview? You don't even get to the Belichick level. It might have been a quick, like, hey, great to meet you, kind of a yeah. drive-by. And we were in the old Foxborough Stadium at the time. So the offices were kind of up on a second floor. They were kind of hidden. So it was kind of a dilapidated rush for saying this, but a little bit of a dilapidated setup. So anyways, so went and interviewed, um, went back to uh, Central, um, and they called, um, and they said, you know, would you be interested in this position? And I said, you know, absolutely. So went and talked to Coach DeBoard. Um, he was gracious enough to, to let me out. And then so I was hired in the middle of June, kind of 2001 in New England, Went up there for a week or two, kind of got situated, got organized. And then that fall, uh, 2000, uh, training camp 2001 started, um, I'd say really kind of got off to an uh, inauspicious start, if you yeah. will, with, you know, with Coach Rabon passed away during, in literally the first or second week of training camp. So there was sort of a recalibration and reallocation of responsibilities. So, and at the time, it was just whatever I'm asked to do, I'm going to do it. So they literally handed me a playbook. And at the time, we were literally handwriting and breaking down the film. I think Coach Dayball, Brian went through this, Josh went through it, where you literally, you diagram each play, all 22 players, the play, the alignments, the technique, the term. So one game took you literally six to eight hours to break down. This isn't, you know, jump on a computer and input the information and evaluate the data. So, and I didn't have any background in the system. Yeah. I literally just got on campus. So they literally handed me a playbook and said, all right, you're going to break the film down for the offensive staff. That's going to be your job during the year. So part of my job that was to stay a week ahead. So I would do three or four games on the opponent. And then by Friday before the Sunday game, I had to hand that to Charlie Weiss, who was the offensive coordinator at the time, so that he could kind of start his preparation. So that was sort of the sort of the first introduction to the opponent. So um, did that responsibility all year um, in addition to my personnel kind of scouting assistant assignments. So that was my first year in the NFL. Um, and, you know, it just kind of kept, I would say, snowballing from there. And then I would say, I don't want to say each year the job kind of changed or my, my role kind of changed. But, I mean, the thought process was try to show up, try to put a good product out there, um, just work as hard as possible I can um, and make them – you know, want to keep me around, understanding nothing is guaranteed. I mean, I think I was making, you know, $14,000 my first year in the NFL. I'm like working mm. full time in the NFL, living in Boston. I mean, I get an apartment with uh, actually. Uh, Who do you live Barnett. with? I live with Clay Barnett. So Clay um, is Gary Barnett's son. It was a, yeah. a, a successful uh, a coach at Colorado. So we literally, we were in a, a, a vacated uh, two-story building that got turned into apartments, like an industrial building got turned into apartments where, the windows, there was no locks. So you could 
open the windows <laughs> up and down. And you could climb like literally through the windows, like if you wanted to. So matter of fact, I was locked out of the apartment one day and the only way to get in was to climb through the window. So we lived in Providence my first year. It was a 30-minute commute from Providence to Foxborough Stadium. You probably lived at the facility, though, right? I mean, who we can't Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you were there. I mean, I was 20-whatever I was at the time, so I had nothing else going on. So that was my first year. And can, it, I, can I throw out some names? So, like, your sure. first year there, yeah. like, Brady's a backup. He's already been there a year. Bledsoe goes down. Where were you for that? Yeah, no, we were playing the Jets, so you know we had the whole 9-11 situation that we were going, we're going through. Actually, so before we get to playing the Jets, so you know, par, part of my responsibility as a scouting assistant was when we brought players in for workouts on Tuesday was to transport them back and forth from the stadium to the hospital. So the uh, Mass General Hospital is right in Boston, Foxborough Stadium, you know, called 30 minutes outside of Boston or so. So we had a group of players in uh, 9-11. So I was driving to the airport and quarter to 9, 9 o'clock, just as the plane took hours. We were I was parking the car in the garage of Mass General Hospital. <laughs> and we started to get some information, like what's going on. So we had a handful of players that were in. So they got their physicals, then drove back to the stadium. And then obviously everybody has their attention turned to what was going on on the television. So that was – that day, so it was the week before we were supposed to play the Jets that week, and then that game got canceled, right? So then we you know, shifted gears, moved it to the following week. So during home games, I would go up in the press box, and then I would actually kind of, for self-scouting purposes, chart our game so that I could input it into the system you know, the following morning. So during the game, like that's what I was doing. So I was up there just charting a game, going through the game. Mo Lewis knocks Bledsoe out. What's, I mean, what, yeah, I mean, and then Brady went the game. The I was just kind of... Like, all right, I'm just going to kind of keep doing my work and kind of preparing for tomorrow. And, you know, Tom went in and, you know, we actually almost won the game there at the end. And then, you know, the following week we were 0-2, played the Colts. Um, Okay, who were, I mean, one of the best teams, one of the best offenses in the league at the time with Peyton and Marvis and then a group that they had. Um, So that was kind of my first introduction to the NFL, the regular season. Um, and then, you know, fortunately, I was able to stay in one place for 20-some-odd years before I got here to Houston. You couldn't have been too much older than Brady. Like, I would imagine you were a couple of years older than him. Did you guys— It's close. Would you guys Very be pals? Close. Like, was that— Or no, is that like a division no. of labor? Really? Yeah, no, I wasn't hanging out with the players. So no. I tried to stay as far away from the players as possible to try to do my job. You know, I think there's a certain professionalism that, you know, you respect the players and their privacy and what they're there to do. And— my job was to work and focus on my job and not worry about things that, you know, to quite frankly don't matter. So, um, cause in the end, I think this league is about work. So if you keep the focus on work, keep the, the focus on the things that are important, like that's the most important thing. All right. Give me a Vrabel story. <laughs> uh, well, actually it's like, a couple <laughs> on my, so, um, so I, the first year, um, uh, my first year with the team was when, you know, Scott and Bill assigned Mike, you know, free agency. So that for, I think we ended up signing, I don't know, 23, 24, 25 players that year as free agents. So, I mean, Mike came in and then Mike would go through his kind of pregame warmup routine. So it kind of evolved into me throwing routes to Mike, okay. part of his, I'd say warm up. You know, and he'd always make the comment about Heinz Ward and his hands were as good as Heinz Ward. Yeah. It's hard to refute that when you go back <laughs> and look at his history. But um, Mike was Mike was as tough as they come. He was as smart as they come. He was as tough as they come. He was very instinctive. He cared a lot about football, but he and he had a great sense of humor. Um, and he worked his ass off in practice. I would say that team there probably in 03, you know, 04 with Rodney, Mike, Willie, 
like Mike would go back during practice. So when the offense was going against the defensive look team, working on the cards for the next opponent, Mike would go back there at free safety just to give Brady a hard time to mm. try to make him work, to try to simulate. And he'd take a lot of pride and a lot of joy out of that. So, and he'd talk a lot of trash during practice. But I mean, Mike cares about football a, a, a ton. And I think you see the way the Titans play. They kind of play to Mike's personality. And you saw that. And Mike was a player, like whatever he was asked to do, he did it. He played outside linebacker in a 3-4. Then we needed him an inside linebacker. And Bill told him, look, you're going to play inside linebacker in base defense. Mike had really never played inside linebacker before. But he went in there and he played well because that was the best thing for the team. And I think because of his intelligence, because of his instinctiveness, he was able to go in there and function. And then we, you know, Charlie and Bill, you know, and goal line jobs. Throw them in there. Situations, put them in there at tight end. So you're trying to create as much value and versatility as a player. And I'd say Mike was certainly emblematic of that. Um, and I think those are the always the situations that are hard. You know, Mike was there for, you know, yeah. 01 to 09. And, you know, then the decision was made to, to move on from him. Um, and those are always, I would say, the tough decisions that you have to make and, you know, that the organization has to go through. Um, Mike went on to have a few more productive years, and then he started his career in coaching. And, you know, Mike's one of the best coaches we have in this league. Sure. Uh, you know, it's amazing. So you progress in your career going on, and everyone knows Belichick as the greatest coach of all time, but he's got an eye for personnel too. Um, for the listeners, Bill Belichick as the evaluator, what did you learn from him and you know, how, how important is he in playing a role in your career as you've been guided through that New England system and then eventually in Houston now? Yeah, massive. I think he's so invested in every aspect of the process. Um, it's, it's rare. I mean, it's uncommon. Um, the level of detail, the overall understanding. So I think one of the things that I learned from him was, among many things, was just the big picture perspective of understanding how all the different pieces and phases fit together from offense to understanding what's going on defense, defense, understanding what offenses are trying to do, how they use personnel, what are some of the things that are important, um, how to evaluate players, how to focus on their strengths, what are some of the things that they do well, um, and I think just the breadth and overall understanding of players in the league, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody um, who has that type of uh, mental acuity as Bill has. So, I mean, it taught me a lot. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that he had enough faith and confidence and trust um, in, you know, what I brought to the table, I mean, certainly speaks to his humility and just allowing people to do their jobs. So, I mean, we could spend, you know, one podcast talking about the things I learned just, Bill, but I'd say his just level and depth and understanding of every aspect of football from, you know, coaching what the punt team should look like to the technique that you need to understanding, you know, what should happen on his double team block or the three technique, the backup three technique and what are his strengths and how the team is going to use him. So just his overall breadth and understanding of multiple aspects, what that taught me was, okay, you want to have as, as wide a scope as possible, just understanding, because in the end, it's a players-driven league. It's a very personnel-driven league. Um, and I think everybody has their own way that they evaluate players or how they view the game or how they, um, you know, how they go through preparing for an opponent. But I would say just team philosophy, understanding coordinators, that typically spills over into how they call a game. It spills over into how they assemble the team. 
So those are all some things I think that, you know, over the course of 20 some odd years, you saw that and I kind of was able to develop my own process and, you know, realize, okay, well, this is, this didn't work. Here's a reason why just understanding the why behind it. So, um, you know, I can't thank Bill enough for the opportunity that he provided, um, for not only myself, but a number of people that, um, have been in that building through the years. All right. So you're in New England for nearly 20 years. You're a rising star. And I'd say for the last 10 of those 20, your names, your name would come up every year for the GM candidacy at some team. And it was always, all right, there's this candidacy. And then Nick Casero, but he'll never leave New England. Or is this going to be the time he finally does leave New England? Um, you took the Houston job. You went for it. What was so compelling and what was so appealing to that Houston job that you finally left the Foxborough, uh, I'd say, friendly confines of where you were comfortable and where you'd raised a family and your daughters got to go to school in the same school and everything you want in a career, you left finally, you took the leap. Why Houston? Yeah, I, I think, you know, our family has been very blessed. I mean, you know, what this league has, has done for us, I mean, we certainly can't repay the people that have provided the opportunities. And I think we all... Um, you know, want to challenge ourselves, And, you know, sometimes you need to make decisions that, you know, quite frankly, you know, puts you maybe out of your comfort zone. Because anytime you take on a new situation and go into something new, there's typically a reason that they're sort of starting over because things aren't going all that well. Um, but, you know, there had been some opportunities at different points. I mean, you know, um, you know, Houston was a team that, you know, Mr. McNair was here, you know, they had expressed some interest or some sentiments and, you know, Billy was here for a period of time. I mean, you know, there were some things, some dalliances through the years. Um, and I think as we kind of got to the end, it was an opportunity that, you know, we thought might be a chance to, to build something here, um, you know, from the ground up um, after 20 some odd years. So I think more than anything, more of a curiosity and the challenge in front of us. And, you know, I'd say the reputation ownership that they had and just in terms of providing people with the opportunity, you know, that they deserve. Um, so anyway, so, you know, we got here in, in 2021, um, you know, f candidly, I mean, the first couple of years probably didn't go the yeah. way that any of us would have hoped. But I think the one thing that you, you do, you hope you just learn along the way um, and you just got to make it work. You got to figure it out. So just take it one day at a time. Um, just be disciplined. Just be consistent. You know, try to make good decisions. If it's not going the way that you either wanted to or hope to, you got to do something to get it fixed. Um, so you know, this was a team that had had some success at different points. Um, you know, I'd say it'd be remiss. I mean, look, we've faced a lot of challenges here, you know, the yeah. last couple of years. Um, but I think we've worked. Do you feel like there's a light now? Like, it's funny because I, I don't want to say it was so dark because in the moment you don't look at it that way. But through the Watson stuff, through the Watson trade, through those different coaching staffs, and now it's like people are talking about the Texans in there, this fun, young, energetic team. And, of course, you would have – Love that from go, but it's almost like you had to walk through the mud to get to this point. Does it feel that way? Yeah, I think the reality is, Peter, things are never as bad or good as you think they are or people make them out to be. So I'd say everybody has challenges that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. Every program is going to have to deal with something. I think what we have to do is just try to fix problems and find solutions. Um, and sometimes it takes a few steps back in order to go forward. Um, I think there's a lot of people that invested a lot of time into this building um, through the year, a lot of good people. Um, you know, and I think the the players have remained committed um, through sort of the ups and downs. Um, you know, when you bring D'Amico into the building with the, you know, his mindset, his attitude, it's infectious. Um, and it's about the players. So continue, hopefully we can continue to add good players into the building with the right thought process, with the right mindset that are committed to winning. 
that put the team, you know, above themselves because in the end, that's what it takes. I was reading a, um, a quote or, you know, after, um, you know, the Rangers won the World Series, you know, Boach made a comment, you know, just about like the selflessness of his team that they don't care about like who gets the credit. They care about each other and it's not about, you know, who did what. And, you know, when you have multiple people and multiple players that have that mindset and you overlay that, overlay, overlay that with a competitive nature, you're going to give yourself a chance. I mean, the reality is this league is, is so damn competitive. I mean, the margins are very small. And it's designed for everybody to kind of be in the middle, um, which is kind of where we are now. And there's some outliers on both sides. So you just want to put yourself in a position where you give yourself a chance. Um, I mean, what going into last week, it was at 75% or 80% of the games in week seven or eight were one-score games in the fourth quarter. So I think that speaks to the competitive nature of our league for the amount of, I'd say, good co- good coaches, good players – and so you're either going to rise to the challenge and embrace that or you're going to cower and walk away. So, again, regardless of how bad or good people think it's going or it looks on the surface, you got to find the silver lining somewhere. And you just got to find solutions and just keep people moving in the right direction, understanding that, you know, you can't accomplish anything by yourself. It's going to take a team effort. Um, so if you can just get as many people with that mindset, and quite frankly, I kind of view my role as just to kind of be a facilitator, sure. and sort of get out of the way, just sort of get everything on the right track, empower the people that are here that you believe in, that you trust, and give them the opportunity to do their job. So, you know, hopefully I've been a good steward in that respect, and certainly we don't have everything figured out, and we have a lot of work in front of us, but it's always exciting when you can see the fruits of your labor at least start to come to fruition. My last question, and we're going to let you go. You've already given us more than enough time, and I'm loving this. I could do this for three hours with you. Um, you get to the combine, and you get in an elevator, and there's a kid there with a tie on and an ill-fitting suit, and he's got a resume in a manila folder, and he says, uh, hey, I, I, what would be your 30 seconds of advice for getting into the league and how to position yourself best for an opportunity to someday be a general manager in an NFL team? Yeah, I would say – just be yourself, be true to who you are, be authentic and just do the work. Cause in the end, it's going to be about the work and try to learn and maintain as much curiosity along the way, understanding you're going to face some challenges. It's not going to be easy. And wherever you start doesn't really matter because really all of us were given an opportunity to start. Once you're given an opportunity, ultimately it's going to be about your performance, about your mindset about your intent on a day-to-day basis. So and in the end, it comes back to the work. So do the work, remain curious, and take whatever opportunity comes before you because you never know where that's going to lead. And no job is too small. Don't think your first step is the most important step. So just be willing to take it and dive right in and jump in and understanding that, you know, it could lead you astray, but just keep working um, and don't lose hope. And if you really believe in what you want to accomplish, you know, there's a lot of people that are going to be there to help you along the way. Isn't it? It's, uh, so just like to you know bring it back to my industry in the sports media, it's everyone wants to be on TV. Everyone wants to write for the New York Times. Everyone wants to be calling games. But you just said something. No job is too small. Like this, the jobs that I had in my 20s. If I don't do those, and I'm talking blogging for websites that don't exist and writing for free newspapers in New York City, then we don't get to the point we're at now where we're doing the podcast and we have a show. And I think, Nick, and our worlds are similar in parallel that, like, yeah, everyone thinks they can do it, but you got you to gotta wait your time and you also have to put the work in. You need to have patience. 
you need to have the right attitude. You have to have the right mindset. And, you know, quite frankly, like you have to put the ego aside just because you work in the NFL, just because you work in the TV industry, quite frankly, it doesn't really mean anything. That's all it <laughs> guarantees us is the next day. Um, and again, it's about opportunity and it goes back and look, you guys, you know, you guys have a great show because you put the work in and it takes a lot of work behind the scenes and candidly, not everybody is cut out for that, but mm -hmm. you've put the time in, you've put yourself in a position. Um, and you know, it's a credit to your mindset because again, none of us were given anything in life period. So it's about what we do with those opportunities. And reality is there's a lot of people that are helping us along the way. And those are the people that we need to lean on the most and tell them how much we care about them and tell them how much we love them. So a lot of respect for, you know, what you've done um, and what you guys have accomplished. I mean, in all seriousness, you've got one of the great shows on television because of the people and because of the work. And it's no different than in the end, it's about the people and it's about the work. I and mean, that's the reality of it. You know my feelings about you as a man, and I respect you uh, as as what you're doing in Houston. It feels like the bedrock is there now, and you guys are building something. And I'm excited to watch it. Last night's game, yesterday's game was exciting, and it's just a, I think it's just a window in what could be the future for the Houston Texans. All those young players, and then just to throw some more on it, like Dalton Schultz making plays, and Nico Collins making plays, and Mark seeing guys like uh, Shaquille Griffin. Like these are not just rookies. You have some veteran acquisitions that are making plays too, and I love the makeup of the team. And Nick, I, I really appreciate you coming on during the season. We'll do this again in the off season. I feel like we're gonna go through your career more, but. Uh, an hour of your time after the biggest Texans win in probably two years. I so appreciate it, man. Thank you. You betcha, Peter. Thank you. Keep J-Mac in line. Uh, real quick, <laughs> McCourty, real quick. What was your scouting report on McCourty? Because you didn't draft him out of, ten, out of uh, Rutgers, but you did eventually sign him as a free agent. Love J-Mac. Him and Devin. I mean, you're not going to find two better. I'll give you a quick story on J-Mac, yeah. actually. So, so he got released. I want to say Cleveland. It was Cleveland. I think he was in Cleveland. Yep. They released him. It was in May or whatever it was. And before he was released, I walked into Bill's office and said, hey, what do you think about Mac? And, you know, he said, hey, all right, let's look at it. Let's take a look at it. So we ended up trading for him before yeah. he was released just to get him in the building. Um, and I would say everything that you all are seeing. I mean, you're let's talk about salt of the earth and just a great human being. I mean, him and D-Mac are like, it's just, you don't find people like that. So we were excited and ecstatic to get Jason in the building because, I mean, he'd been a good player at Tennessee, you know, and Cleveland, he had some injuries, didn't work out, but he helped our team immensely. Um, and he, you know, he, you know, he went through some tough times. I mean, there's another talk about somebody that went through some tough times, oh, yeah. went through some tough times at Tennessee. And then we were fortunate to get him in New England and. You know, end up going to the Super Bowl and, you know, to have him and Devin celebrate together, you know, it was a pretty special moment. He might make the biggest play in that Super Bowl. He knocks the pass from Brandon Cooks no and question. he darts off his man to go make it. Uh, I've been honored and blessed to be his teammate now for two years. And I was so proud of him yesterday. He was calling the game and, you you know, I don't search social media for my own name, but I just typed it his and it was universal praise. And I was like, just like, that's my guy. It was he great. deserves it. He deserves it. It was great. All right, Nick Casario, this is awesome, man. Go do your thing, and you got a game against the Bengals. We're on to Cincinnati. Such a familiar refrain. Good luck, my friend. Thanks, guys. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower, 
37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. It's time for Delivering Results, presented by Uber Eats. Each week, we give out an award for who delivered results. I'm going to go, this one might not be an obvious one. I'm going to go with the Cleveland Browns defense. Another shutout, another win, 27 to nothing. Complete destruction of the Arizona Cardinals. Held the Cardinals under 70 yards of offense. Are you serious? Jim Schwartz is the man in front, but of course you've got guys like Miles Garrett and Emerson and Ward. This team is legit. They, if the playoffs were to start today, the Cleveland Browns would be in. And you know what? Their defense is leading the way. That was Delivering Results, presented by Uber Eats, where you get almost, almost anything. The official on-demand delivery partner of the NFL. Order now. Fun interview, fun podcast, rare Monday one. Aaron, always a pleasure with you. Jason English, our friend from the iHeart team, is not here, so we'll have to give him crap for that. Um, Shout out to everybody out west. And Arizona football continues to win. That is the official team of the season with Peter Schrager. We had Jed Fish on August 14th. They have been one of the best surprises of college football. Matt Schneider, Jason Kleinman, our executives out on the LA uh, side of things. They are Arizona football fans and Arizona alums. I know they listen to this podcast. Another win, another victory for Jed Fish. Bear down. Um, And then for all the folks uh, who are listening, please subscribe, tell your friends. Really helps. Really appreciate it. See you next week. The Season with Peter Schrager is a production of the NFL in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower... 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you.